Well, good evening. This evening, we start a new series of studies in Second Chronicles. It's kind of piggybacking on First Chronicles. It's really the same study, but the books are broken up. In fact, I want to take a few moments. Some of you may not have been here for the introduction to First Chronicles, and uh, it's worth taking a moment to sort of revisit why these books were written. So my intent is to just do a, a brief introduction, and then we'll look at chapter one. But let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you so much for the worship team this evening and just leading us in praise and worship of you. Lord, we are so very grateful for your presence, and we never want to neglect it, and we never want to take it for granted. We never want to forget the great privilege and honor we have to come before your presence with singing and with joy in our hearts. And so may you always remind us of the importance of praising you with our lives and with our hearts and with our minds. And Lord, we pray that you continue to do that work here at Calvary Chapel. Thank you now for this time we have. May this evening be beneficial to us as we seek to grow in your word and grow closer to you in grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles were originally a single composition, one book. In fact, the Septuagint translators, uh, who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek about 300 years or so before Christ, divided them into two books, and they called them First and Second Chronicles. Uh, they sort of uh, they, they sort of inaccurately looked at them, or, or, or actually branded them things passed over or omitted. So while they were referred to, and we refer to them as First and Second Chronicles, uh, they looked at it as sort of an addendum. They, they looked at these books as things passed over or omitted, which is not true at all. Uh, they saw First and Second Chronicles as a mere supplement to First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, because so many of the things that are recorded in these two books are dealt with or talked about to some degree in those other books. Uh, but what happened is uh, the word chronicles was suggested by Jerome when they created the or translated the Latin Vulgate, and the name sort of stuck. It means events of the days or times, and a chronicle is pretty much a diary or a record of things that happened. So this division was transferred to the Hebrew Bible in the 16th century, and the books of Chronicles are placed at the end of the third and final section of the Hebrew Bible. And we have studied First Chronicles already. But the writer of the 13th and 14th books of the Bible is an anonymous compiler, that is, someone who put all the information together, much like an editor, uh, but he doesn't give his name. That doesn't mean we don't have a good idea who it is, it's just that This is an anonymous compiler who compiled earlier sources recorded by others. And it is almost certainly Ezra, the priest and scribe, who compiled the contents of these books. Now, Ezra, who also authored the book of Ezra, had an important role among the exiles that returned to Jerusalem. He led a group of Jewish exiles to return to their homeland in 458 B.C., That is recorded in Ezra's book in chapters 7 through 10. He also worked with Nehemiah to strengthen Israel's commitment to God's law. And that is covered in Nehemiah's chapters 8 and 9. He recorded their history and the events that occurred among the exiles during his lifetime. But he also compiled history from before his lifetime. Now Ezra no doubt authored the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as 1 and 2 Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one unbroken book in Hebrew as well. So he really authored two books, the Chronicles and then Ezra slash Nehemiah, all of them historical works. The last two verses of 2 Chronicles are repeated in the first three verses of Ezra. So it's really part one and part two of Israel's history as recorded by Ezra the priest. Now this shows that all four books are probably one composition in the original version. But Ezra must have written these books after he arrived in Jerusalem in 458 B.C. to encourage reform. Now, there are two words you want to mention because the the books of Samuel and Kings are so similar to 1 and 2 Chronicles. The easiest way to remember this is those books were very much about repentance. These books are very much about reform. They're written or compiled for different purposes. In fact, the author refers to 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings as the source for a lot of his material. 
the books of the kings of Israel and Judah, he refers to them as. In fact, the author makes free mention of many historical sources that he used during the reigns of the kings of Judah. And we'll look at them as we go through this study. So the books of Chronicles were likely composed by Ezra early within what we call the intertestamental period. It's roughly around the time of 458 to 400 BC that we believe this book was compiled, written, and distributed. Of course, we've already looked at 1 Chronicles, but 2 Chronicles records events during the 432 years from the reign of Solomon to the Edict of Cyrus. So it's a time period that covers 970 to 538 BC. A lot of history, 432 years. They are called the Books of Chronicles because they provide a compilation of historical events. Please do not look at them like the Septuagint translators did as a mere supplement to the parallel books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. Just because they're similar and they record many things uh, in, a, in a similar way, many of the same accounts, doesn't mean that they're not important to be looked at differently and independently. See, these books, First and Second Chronicles, present a priestly history of Israel, while the books of Samuel and Kings present a prophetic history of Israel. One is priestly, one is prophetic. Samuel and Kings were designed to convict the people of Israel and bring them to repentance. Whereas the books of First and Second Chronicles were designed to encourage them and bring them to reform. So again, if you're going to make a comparison, books of Samuel and Kings, repentance, books of First and Second Chronicles, reform. And there is a difference between repentance and reform. Repentance would be when a nation has lost its way and rebelled against God. And many nations need that. Reform is when a nation is seeking God but needs to make necessary changes in order to properly serve him. So that puts things in perspective for us. These books provide the history of priestly worship from Saul's death to the end of the Babylonian captivity. And the record of their history and the history of the priesthood in Jerusalem uh, begins during the time of David's reign and goes all the way through this time period that we're going to be looking at. And they emphasize only those aspects of Judah's history that illustrate obedience to the priestly laws. It's all about encouraging people to obey, not to repent, but to reform. And they give prominence to the priestly genealogies and to kings who faithfully worship God. And they present the observance of the law of Moses as the true way to spiritual prosperity in Israel. And so that gives us some understanding. Now, the author wrote to encourage these exiles coming back to Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon. First and Second Chronicles can truly be characterized as books of hope, of hope. Much of the books of Samuel and Kings prophesied doom. But remember, those things had already taken place. So what is the point to look back at history? Why do we even study history? To learn from it, amen? We want to not repeat the mistakes of the past. And so that's part of why this is being shared. Now, these books trace the history of the nation of Israel from Adam to Judah's captivity and restoration. It's a complete history in the sense that it covers the entire time period, but it doesn't try to record everything that happened. But it does trace the line of David to show that Judah remained faithful to God's covenant, which is extremely important for the messianic understanding that Christ would come. Now, Judah had been set apart. They had been set apart as true worshipers of God and identified as God's covenant people. This would have been encouraging, very encouraging, to those who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple prior to and including the time of Ezra. The people needed to be encouraged to rebuild, to reform. So much of what is recorded is found in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. But these books, the Chronicles, are more comprehensive in their contents. And 2nd Chronicles includes very little information about the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. We're not going to talk very much at all, just a, a few brief mentions, whereas you study First and Second Kings, it covers 
a history of both the northern and southern kingdoms until the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 BC, and then it covers the kingdom of Judah until the fall of that kingdom in 586 BC. Second Chronicles also includes a mostly positive account of the kings of Judah. Now, why would that be? Well, if you're trying to encourage people to reform, you're not going to focus on the negative. If you're encouraging people to repent, that's a different story completely, right? You're more interested in pointing out sin. If you're going to help someone to repent, you've got to point out sin. If you're going to encourage someone, that may not be the best method to take, right, to use. So you can see why they're very different in that approach. This selective history, and that's what it is, reminded them of their glorious past and gave them hope for the future. And it was designed to encourage them to consider God's faithful promises to his people. Now, the books of First and Second Chronicles are divided, and we looked at the First Chronicle. Now we're going to look at Second Chronicles, but they're divided. This book is divided into two major sections. The reign of Solomon in chapters 1 through 9, and the reigns of all of the other kings of Judah in chapters 10 through 36. And with that as an introduction, uh, we can now get into chapter 1. And, of course, we start with Solomon. So you can turn there with me in Second Chronicles chapter 1. We're only going to look at chapter 1 this evening. We have enough time to just sort of get started in this study. Uh, although that was a briefer introduction than I imagined. I, I tried to go through it quickly because uh, we've already covered that when we began our study in First Chronicles. But many of you may have missed it. And it's helpful to be reminded of these things before you embark on a study of any one of God's books in his Bible. Okay, so let's take a look at Second Chronicles chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Here we see that Solomon received great wisdom. Uh, Solomon certainly inquired of the Lord very early in his reign. We read in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Second Chronicles that Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. For his God, for the Lord his God, was with him and made him exceedingly great. Then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in Israel, the heads of families. And Solomon and the whole assembly went to the high place at Gibeon, for God's tent or tabernacle of meeting was there, which Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the desert. Now David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar that Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was in Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. And Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Off to a good start. You'll remember from last week's study, David had passed the kingdom on to Solomon. There may be some overlap here before David died. Uh, It's possible that David was sort of still alive, but maybe bedridden, or maybe just not functioning as the high king, for he had taken a step back and passed the kingdom on to his son. Uh, We're not sure exactly when these things happened, uh, but it does say that he was established over the kingdom. David had a lot to do with that, which we saw last week. But the first thing we notice is that Solomon inquired of the Lord early in his reign. Now, inquiring of the Lord, it basically means you're asking God to speak to you. You are asking God to speak to you, to direct you, to lead you in all matters of your life. Now, you don't have to be a king of Israel or king of Judah to come to the Lord and say, Lord, direct me, lead me, instruct me, guide me, and show me the way that I am to walk. If you haven't done that in your life as of yet, or if you've been inconsistent in doing that, may I greatly encourage you in these dark days to start your prayer the way the Lord told us to start our prayer, right? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that way, that's that's sort of the sentiment of what I'm saying, We come to the Lord and we, in a sense, we basically say, Lord, I want your will done in my life. The will of heaven done on earth through me and in me and around me and in the world I live. I want you to rule and reign supremely in my life. 
It's been said that the most dangerous prayer you can pray is, God, rule over my life. Because you know what you really want? You also want to add this, God, overrule in my life. Because it's not just God ruling in your life, it's God overruling. That is, you want him to lead you, but you also want him to keep you from evil or deliver you from evil. You want those moments where you're choosing to do something to be overruled by God. You want God to step in and say, no, don't go this way. You want to hear that voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Listen, it is incredibly important that we give the Lord preeminence in our hearts and our will is surrendered to him because there are going to be times where you ask God to rule over your life, but what you really want to ask is, Lord, overrule my decisions. I think Jesus said it best when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Amen? Very important principle. And Solomon is off to a good start. First of all, he firmly established himself as king of Israel with God's help. God established him. Now, he worked through David, but God established him. Solomon was very successful as a king, and the people willingly submitted to him. The leaders of Israel and all of David's other sons ultimately pledged their loyalty to Solomon. Solomon later on in his life had problems and some civil unrest in his kingdom, but up front, no, not at all. Not at all. In fact, the Lord blessed Solomon above and beyond the blessings bestowed upon the kings that preceded him, Saul and David, his own father. So Solomon commanded all the leaders of Israel to gather at the high place in Gibeon. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, was in Jerusalem in a tent where David had left it with the hope of having a temple built. But the tabernacle was still at Gibeon. That's where the bronze altar or the brazen altar was located with the rest of the tabernacle. And he summoned these leaders to assemble before the tabernacle that Moses built. Heads of families, commanders of thousands and hundreds. This would be all of the leadership over Israel. The judges and the leaders over the tribes as well. And David had moved that ark, as we talked about, to the city of Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance. He had placed the ark in the tent of meeting until Solomon built the temple there. And he had built an altar there, as we know, and sacrificed offerings uh, to stop the plague. We learned about that in First Chronicles chapter 21. So there was an altar there. There was a tent, an altar, and also under the tent was the ark, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant. That was sort of in preparation for the temple being rebuilt there, or b- being built there. But the tabernacle still housed all of the other furniture that was used by the Israelites to worship God through sacrifice. In fact, it was the brazen altar that's pointed out. Because the brazen altar was large, it was still in front of the tabernacle in Gibeon. It had previously been erected at places like Gilgal, Shiloh, and then ultimately Nob. And it was erected on a high place at Gibeon at this time. This was about six miles from Jerusalem, six miles away from where David had placed the ark. So it's not that far away, but they are in two separate places. Now, the brazen altar was the place where the animals were to be sacrificed. Whatever altar David had set up at the temple site where the ark was was much smaller and certainly not meant to be used like the brazen altar was. In fact, Solomon offered sacrifices at the tabernacle at the high place in Gibeon because the law required that the people bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle. Now, if you've never really studied the tabernacle in the wilderness, I highly recommend a trip out to the area of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to see what's called the Mennonite Hebrew Tabernacle Reproduction. It's a museum. I've been there many, many, many times. And every time I go, I learn something else that I didn't know or hadn't considered. It's basically a replica of the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, And the Mennonites, who are a religious denomination, very conservative denomination, but uh, they have set up a museum, and you can go, and there's a charge, a small charge, but you can go and take a tour and actually be led through this museum and really get a good understanding of what the tabernacle may have looked like, probably did look like, uh, how it was set up, what the offerings were like, what the priests were responsible for, Uh, They have a replica of the table of showbread. They have a replica of the um, 
the incense candles and the golden lampstand, uh, the, the altar of incense and the golden lampstand. Uh, then you also have the Ark of the Covenant. It's in a little room. You can't go in there. We don't want anyone's face to melt. I'm kidding, of course. But, you know, you, you can look in through these little windows that they put in the side and you can see it. Uh, and it's just very, very interesting. So if you're looking for something to do, I'm not getting a kickback or a commission, but if you're looking for something to do this spring or this summer, it's well worth the trip, a couple hours away. Lancaster is well worth the trip. But certainly the Mennonite Hebrew Tabernacle Reproduction. I think I said that right. Anyway, I've learned a lot by going there over the years. But this tabernacle, you know, this is where they were to worship God until the temple was built. And Solomon inquired of the Lord, and he did so through sacrificial worship. In fact, 1,000 consecration offerings. Consecration offerings were completely consumed upon the altar. Burnt offerings are sometimes referred to as. So this wasn't like a peace offering where you would bring the animal in, it would be sacrificed, and you would go home with all of the meat. That was designed to represent fellowship with God. You would burn the remains of the animal on the altar, the organs and the things that you wouldn't take home, and you would take home the meat. The idea was that you were having fellowship with God. He was consuming part of the animal, and so were you. Uh, There was also, of course, the sin and trespass offerings, uh, where you would present the animals, and they wouldn't burn the entire animal, but whatever meat was available after that offering would be given to the priests and the Levites. Okay, And then, of course, there were these consecration offerings. And they were different in that no one got anything. It was completely consumed upon the altar. Why is that important? Why is a consecration offering important to us, a burnt offering? For the same reason that I explained up front in our study tonight. You have to offer God all of who you are. Every act of worship begins with consecration. Consecration is saying to God, here I am, all of me. I surrender all to you. We sang that on Sunday. I surrender all. Surrendering all that you are, all that you desire to be to God in worship is where all worship surely must begin. It is a sacrifice. When you take your life and you present it to God and say, God, use me as you will. When you do that, that's a sacrifice. That's an act of consecration. And for those of us who, and I really say those of us, I mean all of us, who have been called to ministry, know that it starts with just saying, God, maybe I want to be an astronaut. Maybe I want to be a race car driver. Maybe I want to be a teacher. Maybe I want to be this or that. But you know what? Whatever it is that you want me to be, that's what I want to be. That's consecration. And it does require sacrifice because there are things that you will not do in your life because you've given your life to God. Not just sinful things. Not just things like sin and trespasses, but actually goals and things that you really want to accomplish in your life that God is going to say no to. But if you give your life to him, he has the right to direct you and lead you to much better things. Can I hear an amen? So if you can see very clearly, the theme of this first section here is consecration. And I want you to understand that's not just a fancy word. It's an attitude of the heart. In fact, the very word worship means surrender to God. We say praise and worship. Praise is saying the truth about God. Anything that you say about God that's true is automatically praise. Everything about God, the truth about God is praise. But worship is something different. It's your response to that truth. It's your surrender of your life to God. So you can't worship God if you don't surrender your heart. Oh, we had such a wonderful worship service, did we? Do you mean you were praising God and singing? Or do you mean that you actually surrendered your heart to him? Because then it would be praise and worship. Amen? Good that we talk about these things. Okay. Well, Solomon, of course, was young, and he recognized that he needed to rely on the Lord's resources. He needed to rely on the Lord's strength, the Lord's understanding. See, when you surrender your life to God, you recognize you need him. He doesn't need you. You need him. And that's what he realized here. And let's read verse 7. It says, That night, that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And you might be thinking, oh, you mean 
Pastor Tim, if I want God to give me a blank check, all I need to do is surrender my life to him? Well, yes and no. Just remember, you've surrendered your life to him. So what should your answer be to this question? Should it be something that benefits you? You see, it's very important that God will answer these types of prayers and give you, quote unquote, a blank check, but only if you're surrendered to him, which means that whatever you ask is according to his will. And the scripture in the New Testament is so clear. We know that we have whatever we ask according to his will. Jesus makes that clear. According to his will, he hears us. According to the name of Jesus, ask in his name. That is according to his will, in accordance with who he is and what he desires for your life. You can't just say God will give you whatever you ask. That's not what's happening here. But you can say that to the man or the woman who's consecrated, God will give to them the opportunity to ask for whatever they want. But what does that mean? Well, we know that it says that the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And he desired to graciously and abundantly bless Solomon because Solomon had consecrated his heart and his life. And he encouraged Solomon to simply ask him for whatever he wanted. If you really want to know whether you're consecrated to the Lord, answer that question. What is it that you want? If your mind immediately went to some vehicle with four wheels and a pearlized paint job. You know, the other day I was getting into my car and I saw this car. I was at the dentist office and it was parked next to my car, which I, I really like my car. You know, I was going to say love, but that's a little too strong. I like my car. But I saw this car parked next to mine that had pearlized white paint. And you have to pay a little bit more for that paint, by the way. So I don't have it. But I looked at it and I said, man, you know, the next time I buy a car, I might get that, that paint color, you know? And I, started, and I caught myself and I said, yeah, you know something? Our hearts are desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it, right? I mean, it really is true. I mean, think about it. It's like these are the kinds of things we see, we want, right? We, we, we look, we lust, we think, oh, and listen, the color of a car isn't a big deal, but it's, it's the attitude of our heart. What would you ask for if you had the opportunity to ask for it? What would you ask for Answer that question in your own heart and you will find out whether or not you're truly consecrated. Or you could just lie to yourself and everybody and say, oh, I would ask for world peace. You know, oh, I would ask for everyone in my family to be saved. Now, of course, you want those things. But be honest and you'll discover your heart and how consecrated it truly is to God. We all have the flesh, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, Solomon knew that he had received many blessings the result of his father David's testimony. And so he says in verses 8 and 9, Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, you might be thinking, well, was that rehearsed? Did David tell Solomon to say that? He probably did, by the way. Probably coached him and directed him as how to pray, and that's okay. But when actually given the opportunity, Solomon answered the Lord properly. I'm sure, like anyone, there were those selfish desires in his heart. But he pushed those things aside and asked in accordance with God's will for the very things that God wanted to give him. See, that's the best we can hope for. There may always be a part of you that selfishly desires and wants things that really are just selfish. But if you, as a consecrated believer in Jesus Christ, when given the opportunity in prayer to pray according to God's will, ask for what you should be asking for, God will answer your prayers, and you will sort of override that natural tendency to be selfish and surrender your heart in worship to him. Nobody here is going to be able to say, oh, I would never want that car. Oh, I would never want that thing. I would never want... No, of course you do. The question is, can you take those things and push them aside in favor of God's will? Can you truly pray, not my will, but your will be done? On earth as it is in heaven, 
Can, can you really say that? I hope you can. It, it's a discipline, a discipline to ask God to do what God wants to do in your life and not what you want God to do in your life. So Solomon knew this. He knew that he had received many blessings. He knew that his father David was much of the reason. David was considered faithful, righteous, upright in heart, despite his sinful disobedience. He was considered all of these things. I mean, the Lord had promised David that he would establish his son's kingdom forever. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He had promised that David's son and his heir would build his temple, his house. And he had promised that he would be a faithful, loving father to David's son. He promised that David's son would not be rejected like Saul, who lost the kingdom and it went to David. Saul's sons didn't become king. David did. He had promised that David's house and his kingdom would endure forever. Now, that doesn't mean that, there, that they always ruled and reigned because some of these conditional promises uh, were not met in the sense that the people turned their back on God and God took the kingdom away. But David's kingdom will be established in the person of Jesus Christ when he returns to rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years and then into all eternity. So it's true, the kingdom of David through Jesus Christ will endure forever. Amen? That's the hope of Messiah. That's the hope of Messiah. That's a messianic prophecy there. So Solomon asked the Lord to confirm his promise to David and establish his kingdom forever. He wants what God has promised. So here's another little test. Are the things you're asking for from God in prayer according to God's word? Not just according to his will, because we talked about that, but are they according to God's promises? Are they according to God's word? One of the tests you can sort of test your heart with is when you pray, are you asking for the things that God's word tells you to ask for and things that are in accordance with his revealed word in scripture? What is the will of God? You know, there's a great study, the will of God. The word of God is the will of God. So you can search the word of God for the will of God. What is the will of God? Well, one thing we know is that the will of God is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance, right? That's one of the things God wills. God's not willing that any should perish, but all, that all should come to repentance. Uh, the perfect and pleasing will of God is discovered as we present our bodies as living sacrifices in accordance with God's word, right? Not conforming to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Present your, God, your, your bodies to God as living sacrifices, which it goes on to say, is your spiritual act of Worship. So you see, all the, that's Romans 12. All of this points to the truest definition of what worship is. So are your prayers in accordance with the promises of God and his word? This was true for Solomon. Is it true for us? You have to answer that yourself. So the Lord had promised all of these things. And Solomon asked the Lord to give him wisdom and knowledge to govern his people Israel. Now we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding right? Reverence for God. Solomon had reverence for God. That's the beginning. But he still asked. And James tells us a very, very Jewish book in the New Testament, the book of James, a very Hebrew book. And it says there that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who will give to all men liberally or generously or without measure. That is how much you want. Imagine if you went to the store or you went to buy bread, right, Sarah? And you went to the, to the to the counter, and you said, oh, I'd like some bread. And they said, well, how much would you, how much would you like? How much do you want? Same price. <laughs> I mean, some of you might pull up an SUV and fill the back of it with bread. Definitely not on a Whole30 diet. But the thing is, how much do you really want? What is it that you want, but how much do you want? Well, when it comes to wisdom, you should want as much as you need. And Solomon had a great task in front of him, and he understood he needed wisdom and he needed knowledge. I got news for you, so do you. You don't even know what you don't know, and neither do I. So one of the things I pray for is, Lord, show me what I need to know that I don't know I need. And when it comes to wisdom, that's really the ability to use what I know or what you show me in a way that pleases God and 
and blesses his people. So we need knowledge and we need wisdom. Knowledge is knowing things. Wisdom is knowing how to do things and how to implement and apply that knowledge. So I think the, uh, I remember as a kid hearing that knowledge is knowing that smoking will kill you. Wisdom is quitting. So there you go. Okay. So he knew that he was inexperienced and inept as the Lord's servant and Israel's king. Do you know that? You're inexperienced. You don't know what you're doing. Neither do I. We need God. We need his wisdom, his knowledge. He was less than 20 years old when he became king of Israel. Now, some of you have 20-year-olds. Imagine your 20-year-old ruling a nation, you know, or younger or a little older. You know, that's, that's, that's a reach. That's a stretch. He desperately needed wisdom and discernment in order to rule and reign, and that's exactly what he asked for. He asked the Lord to give him a wise, according to 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, the parallel book, he asked the Lord to give him a wise and discerning heart to govern his people Israel. It's a beautiful prayer. It's exactly what he needed. He saw himself as the Lord's servant and the people of Israel as the Lord's people. And he spoke in that way. He knew that his own resources, his own strength, his own understanding would never be sufficient. Do you know that? He followed the advice and the prayer of his father David in 1 Chronicles 22, 11-13. David literally told him, pray for these things. To Solomon's credit, he listened to his father. He listened. Let me say this in the nicest possible way. The difference between many wise people and many foolish people is simply that wise people tend to listen. And foolish people tend not to. I'm not saying every father or every mother or every parent gives you good sound counsel, but I have found that generally that's true. Generally, your parents will give you good counsel. There are, of course, exceptions because some of our parents are not necessarily godly people. But even then, many times, most of the time, their counsel is, is designed and, 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 and structured in such a way as to give you good counsel and help you. Again, there are some people that don't fit into that category, but those that listen to those that care about them oftentimes can be described as wise. And those that don't can usually be described as foolish. So these are just very practical applications of biblical principles, Okay trying to be real practical tonight. Okay. So, he asked the Lord for these things, followed the advice of his father David. Then we read in verses 11 through 12, we read this, God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given you, and I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had and none after you will have. And then we read that it says, Then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. That gives us sort of our introduction to the reign of Solomon. Tells us how it started, how it began. So, in this section, we see the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom and knowledge to govern Israel. God is always pleased when we ask for the things that will bless us the most. You understand God hates sin, but do you understand why? God hates sin because it hurts us. He loves us so much, he hates sin. Because it hurts us. And the reason God is blessed and pleased when we ask for wisdom and knowledge is that wisdom and knowledge bless us. That's why God is pleased and blessed when you ask for these things. They are according to his will. If you don't think wisdom is important to the heart of God, read the book of Proverbs. You can't read through even a chapter without coming to the understanding that you need wisdom. As we've said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Okay, so what did the Lord do? Well, he gave Solomon all the wisdom and knowledge that he required. That's a promise that James repeats. 
in James chapter 1. But wealth, riches, honor, and the death of his enemies and long life would have been self-serving. Not that those things wouldn't have blessed Solomon in some way, but they would have been self-serving for him to ask for those things, and it would have revealed his heart. Now, not that he didn't desire these things. I think everyone probably does. But he put them aside and surrendered his will and consecration to God and asked for the things that God desired for him to have. That's our application tonight. That's what you and I need to do in the face of very selfish hearts, because we all have them. And he abundantly blessed Solomon because he didn't make a selfish request. Brothers and sisters, he will abundantly bless those that desire to serve his people. Listen, I know God is good, amen? God is good to us. But sometimes God is so good to me, I have to stop and ask, God, why are you so good to me? Well, God is good to me because I love him. God is good to me because generally, not always, but generally I try to surrender my will and my heart to him and I try to consecrate my life. But I know that God is good to me. One reason I know God is good to me is because I have given him my heart to serve his people. When you're serving his people, God is going to be good to you in a way that he wants to be good to everyone. But if you're selfish, he can't be good to you in that way. He wants to be. But you have to offer your life to him in such a way that he can bless you. Take those things out of your hands that you don't need or don't really, uh, he knows don't really bless you or won't really bless you. And allow him to place in your hands the things that will. Not only bless you, but others. So, He will abundantly bless those that desire to serve his people. He will also provide all that we need to be used by him. See, if God calls you to go into the ministry, he knows your needs before you ask. If he calls you to go on a missions trip, he knows your needs before you ask. God is going to, with the calling, provide the means to fulfill that calling. You don't believe that? Hey, listen, I can tell you countless stories. I can tell you countless stories of how God has worked in the lives of people. Calling them on a missions trip when the cost to go on the trip was several hundred dollars and them not having the money but knowing that God had called them, they sign up for the trip. Pastor Joe can tell you even more stories of how many people sign up for the trip and then someone will approach him and say, Pastor Joe, the Lord has laid it on my heart to bless someone who wants to go on the trip and I'm going to pay for their whole way. Listen, I've seen it. Some of you may have even experienced it. You need to know that that's how God works. Can I hear an amen? You never should think of God as not providing everything you need. He always will, according to his will. He will give us the desire of our hearts, Psalm 37 verse 4 says, that he will give us the desire of our hearts. But that is when our desire and our hearts desire him. That is, our desire is for him. So he will give us the desire of our hearts when our hearts desire him. Well, he gave Solomon the wisest and most discerning heart of anyone who would ever live. And he made Solomon the richest and most honored king to reign during his lifetime. He was the wealthiest and most honored king in the world at that time. And he was also the wealthiest and most honored king in Israel's history. And he promised to give Solomon a long life if, if he worshipped him and obeyed him like David. And you can read that in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 14. These promises were conditional. The promises of God are conditional. The love of God is not. You hear what I just said? The love of God is unconditional. The promises of God are conditional. So God loves you no matter what. He can't love you more. He can't love you less. He just simply loves you. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the promises of God can only be experienced by those that surrender their hearts to him. That is the only way you'll experience the promises of God. I'm not saying God can't be good to and bless people who are not surrendered. It rains upon the just and the unjust. God can show mercy on whom he will show mercy. But if you want to receive the promises of God according to his will and his word in your life, you need to belong to him. It is that simple. And so, he 
promised to give him long life. And Solomon left the high place at Gibeon, and he returned to Jerusalem to reign as king of Israel. By the way, if you read in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 15, you find out when he returned to Jerusalem, he went and he stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant in Jerusalem. He had just worshipped at the tabernacle in Gibeon. He goes back to Jerusalem. He worships before the ark of the Lord's covenant in Jerusalem. And then he sacrificed consecration and fellowship offerings on that altar to the Lord, the altar that David built. So he wasn't done surrendering his heart to God. When he got to Jerusalem, he continued to worship the Lord. And then he gave a feast of celebration for all of his court. And again, you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 3. Okay, then we're given one last little bit of information before we get to chapter 2. And I don't want to get into chapter 2 tonight because that has to do with building the temple. But for now, let's just cover the last section here. This is unrelated to the first 13 verses, other than it shows you how wise he was, how successful and prosperous he became, and how he put wisdom to practice in his life and brought blessing. As a result. So here's what happened. Remember, God said he would be wealthy. Well, this shows us that God fulfilled that promise. We read in verse 14 Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew, and the royal merchants purchased them from Kew, and they imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And they also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites, which were to the north, and the Arameans, which were to the north, uh, northeast. And so we get to the end of this chapter And we find out that Solomon traded chariots and horses along the trade routes with Egypt and Q or Cilicia. Interesting, that's the area that Paul, the apostle, came from. But this is the area of of modern-day Turkey, Syria, Turkey. And that area to the north and Egypt to the south became the areas where he did trade and uh, had a lot of commerce with the peoples in those areas. Now, he purchased chariots and horses for himself, verse 14 tells us. But it's important to note that the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 through 17, prohibited a king from multiplying three things. That is, getting carried away with having too many of these things. Are you ready? First was horses, second was wives, and the third was silver and gold. Now, we haven't gotten to wives yet, but we will. And trust me, he multiplied wives. But here he's now multiplying horses and silver and gold. Now, you need to see that he was wealthy and things went well, but you have to also recognize that the reason God said don't multiply horses, wives, and silver and gold were because it's dangerous to have too much. Has anyone here noticed that when you have too much, you're dangerous? Too much time, you get into trouble. Too much money, you get into trouble. Too much of something, you get into trouble. Too much of a good thing, you get into trouble. And so God was being clear with with the Israelites to tell them, look, don't multiply these things. See, what about horses? Well, horses were to build armies. And then you start to rely on your own strength. Wives were to make treaties. It wasn't just about... See, a lot of people see that and they think, oh, he had lust, he just wanted more and more women. That may have been true, but actually wives were about treaties. You would marry a wife from another kingdom and make a treaty with that nation or that kingdom. So wives were about treaties. So he's getting involved in, as George Washington called them, entangling alliances. And so that's important to know. So understand, when these restrictions were given, there were reasons why they were given. Okay, so to build armies, you got horses. uh, You multiplied wives to make treaties. And silver and gold were multiplied to gain power and riches. So you can see that being allied with other nations was dangerous. Getting overconfident and relying on your army and your strength was dangerous. And relying on your own resources, your own silver and gold, and your own power and strength 
was dangerous. Ultimately, these things did him in, as we'll see in our future studies. Actually, they pretty much do anyone in who relies on their own strength, on their own resources, their own power, or on others. We are to, as the scripture says, some trust in chariots, but we put our trust in the Lord our God. Amen? Well, his love for chariots and horses was equal to his love for gold, and we're told this up front, and sadly, it doesn't end as well as it could have for Solomon because of it. Well, we also know that he imported and exported horses and chariots. This became a business enterprise because of where he was. He could import chariots from the south and horses from the north and sell them throughout the region. And, of course, he would do this as a business. Uh, This business venture with the surrounding nations was extremely profitable. And he took advantage of being strategically located along the north-south trade routes. And Solomon, being wise, did very, very well. So, we're not going to get into all of his faults and failures. That isn't even the point of why this book is written. But it's important to note that sometimes the blessings of God can become problematic if you give your heart to them. So, as you are blessed by God financially, as you are blessed by God in wonderful ways, maybe your job, maybe your business does very well. Maybe you have many relationships. Maybe these things are good. Just don't give your heart to them. Make sure your heart is always consecrated to God. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word this evening, and we thank you that you always instruct us in the right way to go. Lord, we desire the wisdom and the knowledge that you gave to Solomon for good reasons, not for selfish reasons, but for reasons that can bless us, yes, but bless your people first and foremost, and bless you. Lord, may we worship you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, as we are blessed and abundantly blessed by you. May you provide for all of our needs, and may you give us every good thing that can be to your glory, we pray, according to your will and your name, in Jesus' name, amen.